Okay, the skill of honoring that which meets our personal. our personal and collective needs. So it's a skill, discernment is a skill, and that's why it's teachable. It is teachable. Yeah. Yep. It's a skill that we can develop. And and I didn't start, <laughs> you know, I, I I came up with the words radical discernment a couple of years ago, but I've been coaching now in January, it'll be 10 years full time. And I didn't start with that understanding, but as people came to me for building businesses or trying to get clear about what was next in their work life, what I discovered was it was the same like micro practices mm -hmm. that helped them navigate any challenge that they came to me with. And that ultimately those skills all pointed toward honoring our needs. Welcome to the only podcast that will bring you more alive while you smash the patriarchy. Join me, Sam Wilde, a.k.a. The Fertile Feminist, every week as we shift the paradigm, reclaim our native fertility, and create together the version of ourselves that brings forth our heart's desires and changes the world. Oh, my lovely listeners, I have a treat for you. Today is the beginning of my conversations with people who have figured out how to come alive themselves and are now part of trying to help others come alive and to bring the whole world alive, which is what we want to be doing. And who better to start with than Catherine Golub of the Center for Callings and Courage. And she is about the business of personal transformation in service of collective change. I mean, that's perfect, isn't it? So today you'll listen in on our conversation talking about radical discernment, which is a phrase that she uses. We're going to talk about feminism versus social justice and how and why we use those words. Actually, we talk a lot about language and the power of language. And we're going to get into her journey and what brought her to a place of feeling more alive and how that's propelled her into teaching other people how to get to that place of truly feeling alive in their work. I'm so excited, and I think this is a great inspiration as we start out thinking about the living examples of people who have continued to find that way to be more fertile in the world and are now cross-pollinating and germinating and supporting other people. And you'll see at the end that I call her a gardener, and I think that she is. Check it out. Catherine, you are doing such fascinating, meaningful, interesting work. And what I love about what you do is you're drawing from, you're interdisciplinary. You're drawing from so many different places. And we won't get into this right away, but I'm intrigued because you also have a business degree. Mm. You have so much intelligence, wisdom, curiosity, and ambition behind what you do. So I, but for me, I guess I'll go straight to the, the thing that's really on my heart a lot lately, mm. which is this fertility mm -hmm. and both the actual experience in our physical bodies and also this concept of fertility as life force is that mm -hmm. which brings us alive. And I'd love it if we started just with how your experience and your fertility journey has led you to the work you're doing that you did before and that you're doing now and how that comes into play 
in your mm -hmm. current in your current way of expressing your calling? We start from a long time ago. All of my, except for waitressing at Friendly's in high school, all of my early work was as an activist, both paid and unpaid. And I you know, became an activist after um, learning about U.S. foreign policy in Latin America in high school and um, and started the Progressive Students Alliance at my school during the war in Iraq and was very, very active in that. And after um, college, I worked for a few years with the Hotel Workers Union in strategic affairs. And, um, and I, you could say I was a workaholic and constantly on the brink of burnout, but also kind of incessantly not feeling like what I was doing was ever enough. Mm. And then a series of personal events uh, took place, <laughs> starting with my partner at the time was undocumented and was picked up driving to work and was deported. Mm. And I moved to Phoenix, Arizona to continue my work with the union, but to, in the hopes of traveling back and forth to Mexico. And two months after my partner returned to Mexico at a routine gyne gynecologist visit, I discovered I was pregnant. <laughs> I was eight weeks <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> Surprise! Right. <laughs> and that, <clears throat> that changed everything. Uh, I decided at that point, after going back and forth and back and forth about what to do, decided to move to Oaxaca, Mexico when my when I was seven months pregnant and gave birth to my son and uh, spent the next four and a half years moving back and forth to Mexico. And my when I a couple of weeks before I was to give birth, he was still breech. And I remember having a conversation with him and, you know, not out loud, but just sensing in my body. And the message that came to me was, you, ha you have to stay in one place for a little while. You have to rest mm. for a little while in order for me to feel comfortable to come out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> and I made the commitment at that point, this was before I moved back and forth, but with from a more restful place, um, made the made the decision to leave my work with the union for that moment and to be with my son in Mexico. And luckily, had you know maternity leave and a bit of support from my parents. So I had the privilege of taking that year off from work, and um, that's where it started. I could keep going, but that when I when you ask me about my fertility journey, I think I would not be doing. I don't know. Of course, I don't know what I would be doing, but it would have events would have transpired far differently if I hadn't become a mother uh, 14 and a half years ago. Yes. And your case is that's so interesting because you were really surprised by your fertility. It sounds like that, mm -hmm. that wasn't something that you were like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening now. Yeah, I was quite surprised. I. I, I do think that years before that, I remember saying to a friend, I think I'm going to have a baby unplanned in my 20s. Like I do remember having this sense that I was going to become a single mom, not planned, but like, I, I just remember having this conversation. So I feel like there was some intuition 
in me that might have been poking in that direction, but it was so unplanned that immediately after I went to the doctor's office, I had an, a meeting, just me, uh, with the Phoenix city manager and the director of the convention center of Phoenix <laughs> immediately after I found out I was pregnant, <laughs> um, was <laughs> doing some working on trying to get the convention center hotel to have very labor rights. Um, but yeah, that was a, it was a surprising moment. <laughs> surprising. And you, and yet you are a person who, what you started by saying is that you've always been an activist. So this sense mm -hmm. of like life force fertility, like energy drive, uh, creativity, productivity seems like something that's always been alive. You, you have just that you have one kiddo, right? I have one. Mm -hmm. So you didn't go on to keep expressing your fertility in more mm -hmm. surprising ways of motherhood. But where did you, but you did take it. It seems like you've taken it, all of that uh, creative impulse in to your present work. So tell me in like a uh, tweet or three sentences, how you describe your current work right now. I work with emerging leaders in social justice realms. So that might be nonprofits, social enterprises, policymaking, or social movements. And I help them to develop the skills that they need to be as effective as they want to be and to find joy in the long haul. Mm. Yeah. yeah, lovely. You're very, you're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I good at saying it or good? <laughs> you're good at doing it. I know you're good at doing it. I don't even have to ask that. Good Thanks. at saying it. Good at having the sound bite. That's a skill. I mean, I think we can all appreciate that, Catherine, what a skill it is. And I know that's part of your of your work and the idea of discernment, which we'll talk about later, which is like to to have clarity around that. But when you say social justice, and when we were talking going back and forth emailing before this conversation, you uh, one of your emails mentioned the, the effects from internalized patriarchy, internalized oppression. So one of the things that's really fascinating to me is the social justice I love. I feel like it's encompassing, expressive. It's a really broad term. What we don't hear as much is, is feminism. And I was mm -hmm. talking to my 16-year-old the other day, and he said, I was trying to explain to him that Feminism is just the notion that people are equal. So it's a it's a profound word about humanity of all people. And he said, "Well, then it needs to then it needs to be different. It shouldn't have feminine because then it makes it sound like it's just about women." What when do you or do you ever use the word feminist in your work? Mm, that's a great question. So part of, I think, the challenge with the word feminism is that so many people from different realms could use it. And so I really appreciate when we were emailing back and forth, you asked me the question of how do I define it? Because I think that that's key. And um, I am I'm happy to use it if, I think the challenge is that we don't always have shared definitions of what the word means. And if I were to define the word and I were to use the word, I would say it is a movement that for the rights of all, right, you're saying all people, yes, all, and specifically inherent in feminism is of all women. 
And I think the word all is very important. And that if we're looking, that an understanding of feminism has to in, incorporate uh, not just a view of patriarchy, but a view of, as Bell Hooks wrote, imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist patriarchy, and and I would say cis-heteropatriarchy. And so if we're talking about all women, we're talking about disabled women, we're talking about trans women, we're talking about Black women, we're talking about poor working class women, we're talking about Indigenous women. And so I, if I were to enter a room of people, of women, especially white women, all using the word feminism, I would want to make sure that we use the same definition and I think that may be where it um, where it gets tricky. So, yeah. So you find in your work, you're, so does social justice to you cover the intention of feminism? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. What I just what I just named. Yes, I would say. Are you, so there's um, you know the social location wheel, right? That do you, do you know this? Have you seen this image of a social location wheel that is can look like a many divided pie chart that mm -hmm. has many spokes of a wheel. Mm -hmm. um, and on it, it names many different areas of privilege. So naming gender, right? Naming uh, race, class, ability, etc. And so citizenship. And I would say absolute social justice, my definition, you know, there might be a totally better word than social justice, but I use that word to say movements that are about dismantling systems of oppression and about creating a new world in which all people's needs are met. Mm -hmm. And absolutely one, one spoke of that wheel is gender oppression. And, and we can't, really it's one wheel we can't just we may focus our activism on one area but we have to understand that they're all interconnected and interwoven and interrelating mm -hmm. yes yes and always know where we're standing from i i've noticed that something that you do a lot is to really say this is where i'm standing from this is my place of my, my lens my privilege and so on I can remember sitting with, so my lens for feminism is as a, a liberation theologian, so studying mm -hmm. at seminary. And I sat with the, Letty Russell was like very important, one of the first a significant feminist liberation theologians in the country. And I learned from her at this point, I think she was maybe in her 70s. And she always had this, I keep in mind, Catherine, this is more than 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And she was always teaching us every paper we would write. We would always start with, I, this is this is where I'm writing from. I'm a middle-class white woman. Now, we didn't say cisgender 20 years ago because we didn't even have that language. But we mm. certainly would use everything else mm. to describe ourselves. Like, this is where I'm writing from. This is where I'm coming from. And that that is interesting to me what's happening now is that I find the work that was that I was doing in seminary work, both religiously and spiritually, both at Yale. And then when I was at the new seminary is now coming into so many other fields and so many other places where the holistic lens, it was the lens was about the wholeness of humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. So the wholeness, which is exactly what I feel like you're talking about. In fact, you had a great line and I should have written it down, but I'll have to go <laughs> back and listen to it where what the real project here is liberating individuals and the collective. And that is the full intention all the time. So 
when you think about undoing just that one spoke of the wheel, undoing patriarchy for people who are identifying as women. So again, you're just like hanging out with just that one identity for women. Mm -hmm. Nobody has just one identity. But what's what are the key things you feel like are necessary to untangle our own internalized patriarchy? Mm. That's such a great question. And so the ingredients that I name now, there may be there there are so because these because humans collectives and individuals are complex systems. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I'm not I'm not naming that. These are the number one things ever. And yeah. the things that come to mind are one community mm. or relationships. We are mirrors to each other. And if we have been raised in a system, uh, and we have been, that teaches us that our purpose in life is to give to others and to uh, to be quiet or to try hard to get belonging in ways that don't meet our needs, mm. then number <laughs> number one <laughs> is relationships is mirroring with people who mm. honor our needs and can name back to us the things that we know deep down that have been kind of shoved down and ignored like the like our inherent value as humans and Mm -hmm. uh and the longings and callings that arise from us and so first i would say relationships um and then there is also the inner work of learning to be in relationship relearning how to make requests and ask for help and even before that to notice what we need and what we want and even before that learning to just pause so that we're not reacting with habits rooted in internalized oppression or other habits that just don't serve us. We need to learn to pause and notice what's happening within us, notice our needs, then be able to speak them. And in doing that, be able to foster relationships that, that are anti- anti-oppressive and mm-hmm. that help us meet our needs. Wonderful. That's so wonderful to center it in relationship and connection. It And to mirror back, it makes me think of, I've been a minister for a long time, and it's such a challenging word. It's just, I always have the challenging words. This is challenging as feminist, whatever, because it's not immediately accessible to people who I am. They don't read me. If I say I'm a minister, then usually I get people saying, I, you know, I hate church or whatever they have, whatever the thoughts are about it. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about myself much more as a metaphysical midwife, because to me, the spiritual works on the metaphysical level. So we're talking about the love you feel, but you can't touch. We're talking about the work you do on that psychic plane in meditation, visualization, and so on. And what a midwife does is exactly what you're talking about in relationship. They reflect back. And I know this is also what you do in your coaching. They reflect back to you the truth of who you are. So if you go to a great midwife to have a birth, they're going to tell you from the very beginning 
this is normal. This is natural. You can do this. You're strong enough. We can find tools. We can find resources, but I'm going to mirror to you your native power, your mm. native strength. So you aren't something that needs fixing. This isn't a situation that's broken and so on. And that's so powerful that, that you would go right away to relationship, relationship, and as you said, reflection, because to me, that's the midwifing and we can be midwife by our friends, mm. our community. And it is um, the reflection of that's accurate. It's the reflection that is the lens is cleared, you know, mm. instead of coming to see well, even one another. So we're two women. Mm. We both have internalized patriarchy. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. We're also two white women. We also have, you know, certain kinds of privilege. We probably have a lot in common, but we're not exactly the same. But mm -hmm. we're going to, even two women coming together with the best of intentions, like you said, are going to have, you know, things that come uh, out of habit or training or socialization that will have that uh, internalized sense of patriarchy. So how am I a clear mirror for you? You know, mm -hmm. I, in order to be a clear mirror for you, and I think this is what you're saying, I've got to then, I've got, huh, I've got to do that work to clear my mirror. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a theme that I, that I'm hearing from what you're saying, both in the liberation theologian roots and also in midwifing and, and I'll say with, with those pieces, I was in, I spent a lot of time in um, Colombia and Guatemala and Honduras in my early twenties doing human rights accompaniment work. And then after Kai was born, before I became a coach for several years, worked as a doula birth doula and in the midwifing and the field the the liberation and, and i name i name latin america specifically because some of the most fierce activists down there were li liberation theologians yes yeah. yeah and and so the the theme that emerges from me when i hear you saying that is of accompaniment and as a coach i wear many hats i wear a teacher hat i wear a guide hat i wear a I wear my business hat but also i wear the hat of of accompaniment and through mm. life we are recently was listening to a podcast in which and i don't know who this who said this but they said something like humans are 90 percent ape and 10 percent b and we need accompaniment we need our social primates who need people to stand beside us mm. and i hear that's what midwives do that's what that's what so much about the accompaniment work in latin america is um doulas yeah mm. yes accompaniment and standing beside that's and i imagine as a minister that, that you do a lot of that yes i don't think that's the that's not our cultural moment in the u.s that's not the cultural <laughs> that you sense you would be like oh sam's a minister that means she accompanies people i mean you wouldn't go there and in, in the way the uh, Christian churches where, where I've served, I've served outside the Christian church too, but in the Christian church, I don't think that would be the primary sense of things. Hmm. One word, we're in a place where we do overlap from this. And again, I don't even, it's just one tiny piece. It's just sort of accidental that I've even, <laughs> everything is accidental for me, Gavin. Hmm. I even ended up being a minister that I even have this sort of framework from the Judeo-Christian background. One word that you talk about using is the concept of radical discernment. And there are two things that, first off, I love the word radical. Mm -hmm. I love it. The, the Latin word of radical is root, 
So anything that's radical is like right down there working at the root. And that is for me, and I am not, um, I do not think of myself as an activist and don't have your gifts, certainly your incredible history of being in service in that way. But to me, the it has to be at the root, the dismantling of these systems. And we, we've seen that with Roe v. Wade, like you can't, you cannot change it up here on the middle ground. You have to go down to the, to the deep, deep root. Because that if you want to pick a, a poisonous plant out of the ground and you mm. only cut off half of it, it's going to grow back. So I love the radical, but my questions and my interest is around how you approach discernment. Discernment was so critical in, in seminary. It's so essential for ministers. It's so essential on the spiritual path. In fact, everything is discernment there. Like, discern God's will for you, discern what the universe wants you to do, discern your path in life. How, what is radical discernment in your work? Yeah. So if we're at, let's start with radical and at the root of, I think what we're all intending, well, what I would hope, what I hear from you and what I hope for is a world in which all people's needs are met. And if we look at why we do anything we do, every single action that we do ultimately is about meeting a need. And so when I say radical, I mean meeting at the root, these actions that we take, what we're, what we're trying to get to is about meeting our needs. And we look at discernment and discernment is about, <laughs> there could be many definitions of discernment, but ultimately discernment is about seeing clearly and honoring what is. And so I define radical discernment as the skill of honoring that which meets our personal and collective needs. Okay. The skill of honoring that which meets our personal, our personal and collective needs. So it's a skill, discernment is a skill, and that's why it's teachable. It is teachable. Yeah. Yep. It's a skill that we can develop. And, and I didn't start, <laughs> you know, I, I, I found or discovered the words or came up with the words radical discernment a couple of years ago, but I've been coaching now in January, it'll be 10 years full time. And I didn't start with that understanding, but as people came to me for building businesses or trying to get clear about what was next in their work life or about making better decisions at work so they could be really proud about how they showed up and navigating conflict. What I discovered was it was the same like micro practices mm -hmm. that helped them really successfully navigate any challenge that they came to me with. And that ultimately those skills all pointed toward honoring our needs. Mm. Hmm that I'm just pausing. I'm just reflecting. <laughs> I just taking that in this great concept of the radical being about meeting the need. I feel so strongly that what I see a lot is the need to people's individual needs to feel alive and <laughs> the collective need for a living world. So that, to me, that fertile living world is the antidote to climate change and to 
the systems of oppression you're talking about into patriarchy itself, which to me is is the uh, representation of for infertility, the absolute mm -hmm. total representation of that, a complete sense of infertility is the patriarchy. This need, there was a great quote by E. Cummings, who's one of my favorite poets, and I think it was his birthday the other day. So there was a great quote, and I'm not going to, again, do it any justice because he's a poet. I'm just going to totally paraphrase mm. it. It's something like, you know, being undead is not the same as being alive. And my sense mm. growing up, being socialized female, also white, middle class, privileged, all those other pieces, but my sense, and in the U.S., which is like so important because it's such, such a small little window of culture, but my experience was... We, even when I was being taught needs in a therapeutic setting, need for love, need for attention, you need your food, you need to rest, you know, all, we, we started to have a more expansive sense of what a need was. But to me, at, at walking more deeply into my own spiritual path and as a teacher and as a minister has been to be like, well, what if the most significant and essential needs we have is that spiritual need? And that need is to be alive. And that's my word for it. But I think you maybe have different words to be in your calling, to be on purpose, to be vital, to feel your usefulness, but also have it reflected to you. And that's where I circling back around to what you said at the beginning, what sparked your own journey, that sense that you were working and working and working so hard, doing really, really good work, but feeling depleted, exhausted and spent so to me like where where um you are bringing helping to people people feel more alive that's how i would frame it, mm -hmm. it as they're doing this really significant work how do you frame it how do you what is that uh what's the water what's the source mm -hmm. that you're bringing people to so that they can recover as you did from that sense of being exhausted and depleted mm -hmm. yeah i love the word alive and I really um I consider myself a spiritual person and a expensively spiritual person not not uh, there's I was raised Catholic but I and and also with a yoga room in the house and um <laughs> and but I, I don't follow one denomination but I consider myself a spiritual person and I would say life with the capital L is mm. that which flows through all of us and and is sacred. And I orient toward the word calling. The, the name of my business is the Center for Callings and Courage. And I define a calling as a longing to rise to a challenge in service of that which is greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that longing can be a longing to rest and it can be a longing to rise we depend we are seasonal creatures that have forgotten the seasons and mm -hmm. you know sometimes we must winter and sometimes we must summer and so in order to come back to a sense of aliveness and juiciness and mm -hmm. full of full of lifeness we need to learn to honor our callings whether no matter how we internalized oppression will have taught us how to think of them, that capitalism in particular has taught us that we must constantly be productive or we must constantly, yeah, we must constantly be productive and constantly be operating at a certain level of constancy, right? Mm -hmm. So 
so I oriented toward callings and longings and really believing that desire is sacred. And, and therefore, you know, I've been able to like right now, a few months ago, I joined my Greenfield city council, my local city council, and I'm very active in activism. And I don't know how you could compare the hours of what I used to do and what I do now, but I dedicate a lot of my time to activism but yet I feel very alive because I also honor the need to rest mm-hmm. and the need to not talk to anyone. And, mm-hmm. um, and so helping, this is why I, this is part of an example of the same skills that the same little practices that help us feel better also help us make a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we need to rest, if we rest, we'll be able to be, we actually math, like the math of the situation is that we will, will have more energy later to offer. Um, but we must learn to pay attention to what we need. Yeah, beautiful. And that what we need and following aliveness, it does, the discernment was so beautiful about using that word is it, it you said it's about see, you know, vision and seeing and it to change our lens out of the patriarchal, consumptive, capitalistic, violent, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic culture, all the mm-hmm. all the labels, this gender mm-hmm. zone that you could put on it and to have a sense. So in this current culture, I'm just talking about modern um, U.S., we our sense of what it means to be alive. If a person is really alive, they're successful, they are wealthy. Um, you know, things are going right for them on the, on a very material level. Mm-hmm. I once was talking to a friend and we're talking, I said, oh, you know, it's interesting because you haven't really been such an ambitious person on a certain level. And she said to me, right, because I've always been spiritually ambitious. Mm-hmm. And the kind of growth and development and insight that she's experienced is really profound, but she doesn't have a lot of stuff or a fancy house. And I was speaking to another person about this in terms of of really owning our path if we're we have the path of a mystic or the path mm-hmm. of a contemplative. And that concept that life includes seasons, you know, really like we see in, in the natural earth and the fertility and the rhythms of life in all different places, you know, even whether it's four seasons or dry season and a wet season or mm-hmm. so beautiful, it's so whole. And it's so compassionate because then you can really have, well, to me in the yoga sense, I often say to people in Shavasana, you're doing the most important posture. And it's and it's often more important than any other pose as a counterbalance to what we've been taught culturally. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you um, bring in, or if you ever do, you mentioned yoga. Do you ever bring in um, the embodied part? I mean, you're dealing with, people we're always dealing with people's whole bodies and mm-hmm. experiences <clears throat> you're also very i guess the body part too maybe and you can reflect on this is in that sense of like are you sleeping enough eating just that mm-hmm. loving nurturing attention to the the details that as you said we can do better work when we're fed taken care of rested mm-hmm yeah so I don't I don't I haven't taught yoga for I don't even know how many years seven eight years a long time but the work that I do is still very somatically rooted and informed I can't imagine any 
personal transformation approach being effective without an real orientation toward the body because that is where we live we are in the body that is where you know habits arise from everything everything orients back to the body so so that is both with the like macro activities of sleeping i would say if, if people don't listen to anything else i say get enough sleep period <laughs> right <laughs> and that's like where you're dedicating your hours right that's yeah. and then in terms of somatics then there is the shapes that we hold you know three leaders walk into the room imagine three different leaders one slumped over one's like storming forward and one is really centered and grounded and present in their body and none of them say a word how are you going to interact with each of them mm. and so especially when I work with leaders they have to be somatically aware and work on mm. practicing being in the shape of the body that reflects their values and their commitments and then also in terms of I mean I could go <laughs> we could have a whole conversation about soma soma meaning what's the greek word meaning the integration of soul body heart mind mm. how the soma interacts with social change but um, another is we think about those habit, habits that arise and make us act in ways that don't serve us or don't serve other people. We can, if we develop awareness of our bodies, we can notice when those habits, <clears throat> excuse me, begin to arise. It can feel like this itchiness or like an urge or like we're compelled or like pulled or mm. to do something or pushed away. There's, that can be more an aversion. <clears throat> but those, when we learn to pause and notice those little sensations we can notice them because habits arise first as sensation we can notice them before we react in ways that might not serve us or the situation and so constantly i'm i'm asking clients to come back to their bodies also intuition and desire and longing and calling and aliveness they all arise from the body they're physical they arise as physical sensations so i absolutely orient toward toward the body in my personal practice and and with my clients mm, I like the images of those three leaders in their body and that's an amazing amazing and actually they did a great study this is not really <laughs> exactly right on with what we're saying but they did a fascinating study about how women taking self-defense helped them and, mm. and the main reason it helps them is they just walk and carry themselves differently and that is responded to then by potential perpetrators respond differently just to the stance of the physical body. Now, isn't that fascinating? So that's yeah. a little bit, I see that in what you were, what you were saying with those three people, but you working with leaders, so you have those three leaders come in, one slumped over, or you have mm -hmm. 10 different people you're working with and you are helping them to give birth to what, to that, how, to that more, how would you say it? Sure. So it would depend, how I would say it would depend on what the client was looking for, right? So, and regardless of what the client's looking for, I would often incorporate similar practices, but some people will come to me because they're in a conflict situation with their boss or with their uh, people they're supervising and they feel stuck in it and really worried about what's about to happen if they don't figure it out. So I would say for them, it's about you know, learning new ways to communicate and to show up in the midst of conflict and to navigate it really 
effectively. Some people will come to me saying that they're exhausted and overwhelmed and burned out. And that's about learning to get their energy back. And they're often uncertain about whether they want to continue the work that they do. Um, and so clarity is a word that they will use quite often. Or another client might come to me just having been hired, promoted to a new leadership position and and not have conflict yet, but really not want to get into a situation of conflict. And they might use the word of leadership skills. And, and um, I could probably go on, but mm. how I name it would really depend on where the clients, you know, how the clients are naming it. And I feel like that's part of a, the work of a coach is really to honor the language of the client and mm. also help them see beyond that language into creating new stories that serve them more. Right. And you're definitely giving people language. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things, unique and powerful things you're doing is using language in a very specific way. You mentioned that your business is, is callings and you are helping people as they birth new callings or get in touch with original callings. Your calling, Catherine, mm. is what you right mm. now. Yeah. I would say ultimately, I am committed to co-creating a world in which all people's needs are met, whether that's in my lifetime or in the future. And I do that in many ways. You know, I do that in parenting my 14-year-old. Um, and we every week we have coaching, <laughs> we have coaching conversations <clears throat> at the beginning of the uh -huh. week about what are what are his what are his current wants and his future selves wants and what do we need as a collective and you know that he belongs mm -hmm. to many different collectives and what's it, what are the needs there and what are the commitments he makes so that may be one and I'm teaching him to learn to honor the needs of the collectives whether that's school or you know right now canvassing around the elections or you know or meeting creating a world in which all people's needs are met working with people who are actively engaged in whatever shape it takes in meeting, helping people meet their needs and helping, so helping my clients do that more effectively, or, you know, as a city councilor, working to create policy that helps meet the needs of the people in my town or my city. Um, but ultimately I am, that's my commitment is mm. that's what I reach toward. And I know, I believe it's unlikely that I'll achieve that in my lifetime, but really it's, I think it's, it can be easier. It can create some relief when we see our callings in the, in the context of movement work, as opposed to just being something that we have to achieve by Sunday. Right. Right. <laughs> we know you start, we started talking, you were use the word activist. If you had to give yourself a label, a one or two or three, but not more than that, what would it be? It feels easier to find one than to find many in this moment in response to this question. <laughs> you ask me tomorrow and I might answer it differently. <laughs> but the word organizer is, uh. is key. And I would say an organizer is a person who is committed to helping to cultivate the leadership capacity or the, I want to name that we're speaking English, which is a colonizer's language to try to talk about <laughs> decolonizing ourselves, right. which is really, really hard. Right. So leadership is a word that I use, but it is definitely not a perfect word. Um, <clears throat> but a, a leader is someone I would say who 
follows their calling and helps other people follow theirs. And so my job as an organizer is help to cultivate that leadership capacity in other people. So when I get emails from constituents like yesterday, our city teachers are in a contract negotiation and they're sending letters to me as a counselor, I first respond, you know, oftentimes a lot of councils don't respond. I, I think it's really important that relationality, thanking them, mm. thanking them for showing up. Mm. that helps them to stay engaged and do more. And two, I say, will you come to the next city council meeting and give public comment and bring other people? Mm. That, this is a tiny example, but it's just an example from yesterday, sending these emails. <clears throat> so an activist is someone who takes action to change, to change systems of oppression that are a lot rooted in policy. But an organizer is someone who doesn't just take action, but helps to cultivate the ability for others to take action mm -hmm. and I could say I do that you know mother is a and partner are mm -hmm. a huge I don't want to decenter those mm. they're very important to me and I see myself as kind of a mother organizer yeah. my job is to cultivate my child's capacity to to do those things as well and to to follow his callings and to help other people follow theirs so let's say organizer for right now <laughs> that's great actually I love that because that really helps me understand you better I, it, that really what that really helps me know your work that seems like right and I love the word uh, to organize it makes me think about one playful way people just use an acronym G-O-D which is good orderly direction Mm. good orderly direction and how to me that organizing principle is very shiva in the yoga tradition that very powerful directive um boundaried and how how really nurturing and strengthening that is to have that so this is great i i know mm. i see that and i also heard you say you might you might be something different tomorrow so holding that space too for all of those pieces of ourselves nobody is one thing of course and you are um, lovely fascinating and you have so much in your uh in your through your beautiful journey and history all these different pieces i can't do it justice in such a small amount of time this should be really be a two-hour podcast mm. <laughs> because i would love to hear more about you're traveling. I'd love to hear more about the motherhood. I'd love to hear more about how you ended up getting your MBA and what led you to that place. But I am going to not hear more about <laughs> it today. So maybe in our next conversation, and I'm so grateful that you're willing to talk to me about uh, and be in this sort of cross fertilization, because I'm really enjoying being uh, seeing you on social media on Instagram, looking at your work. I love your website. There's so much uh, rich, interesting stuff. My metaphoric writer mind goes to the thought of you as a um, gardener because you mm. just cultivate a couple of times as a, you know, so maybe metaphysical gardener or maybe on the large scale, just really that leading through uh, cultivating and growing. And so. I will, in my mind, I'll see you also as a gardener. Thank you. And <laughs> this conversation is so alive and juicy, Sam. I'm I'm really appreciating these questions that I 
may not have asked myself in a while and haven't been asked by other people. And I just, I really appreciate the, the fertility that comes in and the, like the gardening and the, the, the care and the cultivation and, and all of that, that comes with really great conversation and questions. And I'm feeling very grateful for that. Yay. This was lovely, lovely, lovely. How, how can people find you and be connected to you and be in relationship with you? Thank you so much for asking that. Um, the key, a key way is through my Saturday love letters. So I send a free, fresh, really written uh, love letter every Saturday morning uh, to, to readers. And it's really like a morsel of free coaching each week. Mm. And people can receive the love letter by going to my website, which is callingsencouraged.com backslash subscribe. And on my website as well, people will find more about courses coming up next year and my coaching. And I also spend a bunch of time on Instagram at, at Catherine Golub. So people can be in relationship with me there as well. Yes, everyone who's on Instagram, it's great. Every time it's a nugget in every one of your posts. Thank you. That's, yeah. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, Sam. I really enjoyed this. Let's stay relational. Yes, please. <laughs> stay connected. Okay, have a beautiful day. This is me, Sam Wild, aka The Fertile Feminist. And you've been listening to The Fertile Feminist Podcast. Find me on YouTube at The Samantha Wild, aka The Fertile Feminist, and hit the website, thesamanthawild.com, for all kinds of resources, inspirations, and ideas. Also on Instagram at The Fertile Feminist. Until next week, may you tap into that native abundance, creativity, fruitfulness, and life force that's going to help us all bring about that more beautiful world that we know is possible.